If you will join me in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, this morning we begin a new series through the book of Galatians. We will be looking at verses 1 through 5. The title of our sermon is Delivered from this Present Evil Age. And our keywords for worshipers and training are grace, peace, and evil. Now it doesn't take long as you read through the history of the Christian church to see that there's never been a shortage of false teaching and false teachers. From the very beginning of the church, Christians have been found engaging in the sometimes very painful task of combating error and working to maintain the integrity of the faith and the purity of the bride of Christ, the church. Now, early on in the history of the church, there were issues like Gnosticism and the divinity of Jesus Christ and man's autonomy and the Trinitarian nature of God. Later, there were controversies about the nature of man, uh, about God's way of salvation, and about justification by faith alone. There have been major divisions over the authenticity and reliability of the scriptures, the supernatural miracles of Jesus Christ, the efficacy of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And today, of course, there's no shortage of controversies, things regarding uh, things like the charismatic gifts, the place of the church in the Christian life, the use of the law of God. And truth be told, all of these controversies that the church has dealt with and many more are still lingering today. In fact, several cults and several Christian denominations exist today because of some of these distinctions. But as a people who believe very strongly in the sovereignty of God in all things, we have to acknowledge the fact that these controversies and these debates within the church have existed for a reason. God has ordained that they exist throughout the ages for a purpose. Now, it doesn't seem to most of us that the best way for Christ to build his church is by introducing false doctrine to his people. And we must admit that through false doctrine, many have been and will continue to be led astray. But we also have to admit that God's wisdom is greater than our wisdom, and he has actually done much good through false teaching and teachers in the history of the church. William Cunningham writes this, it holds almost universally in the history of the church that until a doctrine has been fully discussed in a controversial way by men of talent and learning taking opposite sides, men's opinions regarding it are generally obscure and indefinite and their language vague and confused, if not contradictory. Every controversy within the church has forced the people of God to think with greater clarity. It has forced us to spend more time examining the scriptures, looking afresh at the things we have perhaps in the past glossed over or misunderstood, thinking all along that we've had a firm grasp on it. And the result 
of all of this has been that we have a much more precise understanding of the word of God, a much more faithful proclamation of the truth. That is, if we have learned from the controversies of the past. And we can't deny that in God's sovereignty, much of this controversy has served to solidify through study and through writings the body of doctrine that we hold true today. So it shouldn't surprise us that even as early as the writing of the New Testament, that the church was dealing with error. Much of the New Testament is taken up with writings correcting errors and rejecting false teaching of those who sought to bring harm to the church of Jesus Christ. And the book of Galatians is no exception. In fact, Galatians is one of the most, if not the most, forceful letters in the New Testament when it comes to correcting and combating error. And what's likely to become very evident to us as we work through the letter to the Galatians is the central issues that he addresses continue to be central issues today. What is the gospel? How can unrighteous sinners be made holy with a God who we have offended? And once we're made right with God, how do we make lasting progress as Christians in this life? If we're saved by faith alone, apart from works of the law, what does God require of us now? What is the law's relationship to the gospel? All of these questions are central to our focus as we walk through the book of Galatians. And if you're visiting us for the first time, it is our common practice. We walk straight through books of the Bible, verse by verse. We want a holistic understanding of the scripture and not just the favorite parts of the preacher. So we walk through all of Galatians, Lord willing, in the months ahead. And we begin this morning in chapter 1 and verse 1. We'll read um, those five verses uh, together. Beginning in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, it will benefit us this morning to consider the introduction of this letter to the Galatians. And as you read through the Bible, it is very helpful for you to have a grasp of some of the circumstances surrounding each book. And oftentimes, those details can be found within the book itself. And that's the case with Galatians. Now, at the very beginning of our letter, we are introduced to the author, Paul, an apostle, Now, many people assume that Paul's name was Paul after he was converted to Christ because prior to his conversion to Christ, we see him referenced as Saul of Tarsus. That's not really accurate. What is most likely the case is that 
something that fits with common practice of the day. Paul was Jewish, but Paul was a Roman citizen. So Paul had a Jewish name, Saul of Tarsus, and Paul had a Roman name, which was Paul. And so it's unlikely that it was some sort of post-conversion name to show that he had changed. That's not what was going on. Um, But why would Paul have now gone by his Roman name exclusively after he was converted? Well, because of the nature of his ministry. He was bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he was more able to identify with them as Paul instead of as Saul. Even with his name, the apostle became all things to all men. Now, right here at the beginning of the letter, Paul very plainly and almost surprisingly asserts his position as an apostle in his opening statement. It seems odd, perhaps, that Paul is so direct in asserting his apostleship. He's, he's almost forceful with it. Why did he do this? Well, the most likely reason is because there were false teachers who were causing the church in Galatia to doubt the authenticity of of Paul's apostleship. They wanted their teaching to be accepted. And so what were they going to do? They were going to attack the apostle who had brought the church to the people. And they were telling them that they shouldn't, indeed they couldn't trust Paul because he was not who they thought he was. He wasn't who he said he was. But the reality here is what Paul has stated. He is indeed an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he has the authority of God as he speaks and as he writes. And so when people foolishly want to discount what the Bible says at certain points because it was written by Paul and it wasn't the words of Jesus, they make claims like this. Well, that's Paul's writing. They place less emphasis on it. We must be reminded that Paul was indeed an apostle. And so he had the authority to proclaim the truth and the very words of God to his people. So when we hear from the apostle Paul, we hear from God himself. But just so we're clear, we have to ask the question up front. What is an apostle? In the most basic sense, an apostle is one who is sent as a messenger with a message. But in the way that the church has understood and used the term apostle as it relates to Paul and the other 12, we're speaking of one with a special message, as a special messenger sent out extraordinarily to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And other than those appointed by Christ to be apostles, we do not believe there are any others. Many today will make the claim that they are apostles or that apostles exist. But we believe the Bible teaches plainly that it was a special office designated by God for a special purpose to bring about the establishment of the church and the writing of the scripture. The church has been established, the canon of scripture has been closed, and therefore the office of the apostle has ceased The apostleship was, in terms of an office, the highest office in the Christian church. So right out of the gate, Paul identifies himself as an apostle, one who's been appointed, one who has been sent out with a special calling. 
But notice, he also makes some clarifying remarks about his apostleship. He says his being an apostle, here in verse 1, is not from men nor through man. Literally, he's saying he is not constituted or commissioned by men. In other words, Paul wasn't made an apostle by the authority of any man or any group of men. Paul wasn't credentialed and sent out by a group of men. Paul's commissioning and being sent as an apostle was from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In fact, later in chapter 1, in verse 12, Paul says, I did not receive the gospel message I preached from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul is who he is as an apostle without any human intervention. It was the work of God entirely. And this is fully consistent with what we read about Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. Now I want to point out that while the office of the apostle is unique in the Christian church, the aspect of God's commissioning and sending out is something that has a far broader application. We have to conclude that if a man today is engaging in ministry, having not been called by God to fulfill the task before him, he will fail. In fact, he will do much damage to the church of Jesus Christ. And and all of this talk before about error in the church comes primarily by way of those who are walking in places of ministry for which they were not called, called and for which they're not qualified. So it's not uncommon in our day to see young men desirous of the ministry, their churches see them rise up and say they're interested in preaching, they're rushed into the pulpit, they're rushed into places of leadership, they're rushed off to seminary so they can get back to pastoral work as soon as possible. But the problem is that in order for us to understand whether or not a young man is called and gifted for ministry, we need time. We need time to watch and assess. And in fact, we'll learn in a couple of weeks that for Paul, it wasn't overnight that he began the work of an apostle. It took time. It took training. It took understanding. Does a man sense that he's being called by God to pursue a life of ministry? If so, then let the church patiently and faithfully examine his life, examine his gifts, and determine in time if the calling that he senses in himself is genuine. The danger for any man is that he is sent from men and through man, and not by the Lord and for the Lord. And by the way, this is why we value objective relationships with other churches as well, because they can come and help us to assess those things. That's why we have councils to evaluate and listen and look at a man's life and doctrine. So if a man's to be faithful and useful in the work of ministry in the church, he must be called by God. That is essential. And Paul makes clear that God is indeed the one who appointed and sent him. He says there in verse 1 that he was made an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now this statement is the first of three in these first five verses here that Paul shows us the work of God being a unified work between the Father and the Son. 
And I really want to key in on this because it's a beautiful picture that we have of this relationship between God the Father and of Jesus Christ the Son. Between these two persons of the Godhead, there is absolute oneness of heart and and mind and purpose. They think and they act and they, they govern and they stay together. And they bring fulfillment of their joint eternal purpose. The Father and the Son here are clearly of one heart and very much hand in hand in what's going on. So we know the Lord Jesus Christ is a divine person. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Logos. And though as a person he is distinct from the person of the Father, they share the same divine essence and nature. They're both equally God. There is no distinction in terms of their being God. This is why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus himself said in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so two distinct persons of the single Godhead. There's God the Father and the Son. And there's a foundation that is built from this in which there is a unity of action and purpose and thought to bring about God's determined ends. The Father and the Son are never at odds with one another. They're never pulling in different directions. They're never, um, they never different in, in what they want to do. They are one in focus, and we see that in Paul's writing here. In the first place, we see the unity of purpose in the Father and the Son is in the appointing of the Apostle Paul. He's not appointed from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, take one note of one more thing here in Paul's opening verse. As he is identifying his apostleship coming directly from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he is quick to remind the Galatians that this is God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this idea of the resurrection is the most radical claim of Christianity. The resurrection of Christ. And it was ever present in the mind of Paul and in his preaching and in his teaching. It is as much a part of the gospel message as Jesus' perfect law-fulfilling life and sinner's death. And it's not unlikely in his mentioning of the resurrection here in his opening statement that he was purposefully asserting that as an apostle, he was called and commissioned by the Savior who was raised from the dead by the Father. This was, not, this was to say that he's not any less of an apostle than those who were commissioned by Christ prior to his suffering and death and resurrection. There were false teachers seeking to discredit Paul because he wasn't among the original apostles who were appointed. And so he is asserting, not only was I appointed by Christ, but I was appointed by the risen Christ, the one who's been raised by the Father. And that will become more clear to us as we move along, these false teachers seeking to discredit Paul and his authority. Well, the second thing Paul shows us here is something of his traveling companions. 
In verse 2, Paul turns his attention from himself to those he was with. He mentions all the brothers who are with me. Now, your translation may say all the brethren instead of all the brothers, but it seems most fitting that he was saying brothers because brethren in the New Testament is referring to brothers and sisters. Um, In this instance, Paul is most likely just referring to those brothers who were with him uh, and were likewise ministers of the gospel, a greeting being passed from pastors and evangelists onto one church or the other. And so we have to understand as well that this is just a greeting from these brothers. This is This is not some suggestion from Paul that they're helping him write this epistle, um, that they're giving him ideas of what to write, or that he's trying to gain extra credibility by their being with him. It's merely a greeting. It is a greeting of affection. And it probably also identifies the fact that he was indeed talking about these things with others. He's, He's very much in fellowship with the broader church, and it's very important, and it, and it matters with him that all are understanding these things. So Paul has traveling companions, and they're sending a greeting to Paul's audience, which is the third thing, to the churches of Galatia, he writes there in verse 2. Now, Galatia was a large region, a district containing various cities. So, The church would have been scattered abroad, widely, consisting of many different local assemblies, each of them very likely uh, a bit different in their makeup and in their practices. Now, undoubtedly, many of the churches in Galatia had embraced the false teachers that had come and their teaching. But there would have certainly been others who did not waver from the truth, who stood faithfully on what they had heard and received from the Apostle Paul. And so there's a mixture of ideas within the churches to whom he was writing. And in Paul's identifying the churches of Galatia, there's a very contemporary application for us. And this could be said of any generation. Paul uses that word church. And church always implies a unity of faith. We have to ask a specific question here. What we will see as we walk through the book of Galatians is that at least some of the churches in Galatia were in fact embracing some very significant errors. What business then do they have in claiming the name of church? And why would Paul address them as the church? We have to be very careful, brothers and sisters. Even the greatest and purest churches of the world have their faults and failures. John Calvin writes, Some are marked not by a few spots, but by general deformity. We have to be careful to not write off every church that doesn't look like what we wish it would look like. No doubt there may be many errors, and we don't take those errors lightly. However, if there is a profession of true Christianity, if there is a worship of one God, an observation of the ordinances of the church, and some kind of gospel ministry, we, we must not be quick to cast it off as being non-Christian. We need to be patient with our brothers and sisters. We need to encourage them along the way. We need to recognize that some churches will be less mature than others. 
And we don't just cast them off and say they're not brothers and sisters. We have to identify them as Christians until proven otherwise. Now, that doesn't mean that of those deformities that exist, that some of them aren't churches. That's very true. Some of them are not, and we must identify them and condemn them and seek to get others to flee from them. But let's not be quick to say that just because someone is in error, even sometimes significant error, that they're not our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to be careful that we are not calling someone not a Christian who Christ may have very well died for. However, it may very well be true in all of this that there were local assemblies in Galatia that are holding to distinct heresies that were damnable. And that is very much the case today. There are those who, people who identify themselves as the church when in fact they are the furthest thing from a church. They've abandoned all identification of being Christian. And there's no, be there no mistake, there's no shortage of error that exists and exists to such an extent that when it is embraced and when it is professed, it is, in fact, nowhere near being Christian and in many ways is quite different from what we see in the overall situation in Galatia or else Paul would not have identified them as the church. Were they confused? Yes, very likely they were confused. But remember, too, that the Galatians didn't have all that we have today to guide them. They were easily swayed by cunning and eloquent teachers. They were not yet well grounded in a foundational body of truth. They were, they were still trying to identify what is the true way of Jesus Christ. So like Paul, we must accept that the churches of Galatia were very much true churches, albeit filled with numerous errors and difficult problems that needed to be addressed. And that's the occasion of the letter. Paul, most ultimately here, is addressing these errors. Let's take heed to this as well. While it is true that none of God's elect will ever completely or finally fall away in the sense that salvation is lost... And likewise, we trust the promise of our Lord Jesus that he is building a church against which the gates of hell will not prevail against. We cannot rest on our laurels and assume that this means that we, as in a local assembly, local assembly will persevere. Indeed, the first few chapters of the book of Revelation provide us with ample evidences of local churches that drift away into a world far different than that which Jesus Christ has determined should be for his true church. In fact, we don't really know all that came of the churches of Galatia. And so we should receive this letter today in very much the same way as a warning that the people uh, received in the day that Paul had written it. What God said to Paul uh, what, what God said to Paul and Paul said to the Galatians long ago is what he wants to say to us here and now. Let's never assume that we are free from the possibility of significant error. We must be a people who are um, insisting upon a biblical way of life 
and a biblical formation of Christ's church, lest we slowly drift away into something other than the plain proclamation of Christ and him crucified as the only way of salvation for all of mankind by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law. So Paul has identified himself as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. He has identified that he has numerous traveling companions who are greeting the churches in Galatia. He has identified his, his audience as these various churches. And then he provides them with a blessing, a greeting to the churches. Look again at verses 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, here in Paul's blessing, we see the other two instances that I mentioned earlier of Paul uniting the work of the Father and the Son together. The first is here in verse 3. We see the Father and the Son together granting grace and peace. Grace, as one commentator writes, is that goodwill on God's part, which not only provides and applies salvation, but blesses, cheers, and assists believers that many-sided favor that comes in the form of hope to saints in despondency of joy to them in sorrow, of patience to them in suffering, of victory to them under assault, and of final triumph to them in the hour of death. God's grace is so full. It is so rich. It is so necessary. It is so amazing. And it's not just for our brothers and sisters in Galatia but it is for us, it is for you and for I. It is the very thing that we need each and every day, the grace of God that we might persevere in him. And so too, we need peace. Peace in the midst of trials to help us remember to not be anxious about anything, but to rest in God's providential care of his children. Peace to know that no matter what happens today, God is with me always, even to the end of the age. Peace to rest in the truth that God is working every circumstance in my life together for my good because I am his child. Peace in that I can have absolute hope because when I depart from this life, I enter into everlasting rest with my Lord. We all need constant supplies of peace. Isn't it such a wonderful comfort to know that these blessings of grace and peace are not unapproachable realities for us, that we can only get if we, if we wish hard enough for them, or they only come through vigorous action or works on our part, but, but these are free gifts of God for his children. Grace has come to you by the Father who has called you to himself. He has made you his child. Grace has come to you by the Lord Jesus Christ who has taken upon himself the full penalty of the Father's wrath in place of all of those who have been emptied of themselves in repentance and who have come to Christ in faith. And any sense of peace that you have in this life floods into your heart 
because it has been promised to you by the Father. It has been secured for you by the Son. Brothers and sisters, nothing else can compare to the greatness of these gifts for the true child of God. Grace and peace. The other way we see the work of the Father united to the Son is in verse 4. We see that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. That's the work of Christ. He gave himself as a substitute to atone for the sins of all who call upon him by faith to deliver us from this present evil age. All of this was in accordance with the will of God our Father. So what we get here is a small glimpse of something that's actually evident all throughout Scripture. It's something that we call the covenant of redemption. Quite simply, the covenant of redemption is an agreement that God the Father made with Christ concerning his elect people to save them from their sins. And as a result of this agreement, Christ undertook the responsibility of keeping the whole law for his people to suffer the punishment that our sins deserved. And as a result of Christ fulfilling his part of the covenant, God the Father justifies and sanctifies those Christ died for. So we see an affirmation of that very thing here in verse 4. The death of Jesus was at once and the same time a voluntary act of self-giving for the salvation of his people and an act of obedience to his Father in heaven with whom he had covenanted. They were together in this. And the thing here that Paul writes about our being delivered from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. This is where I want to focus the rest of our attention this morning. He's speaking, of course, of the time between the original creation of things and that glorious day when the new heavens and the new earth will come. And so it is now, it is in this present state of things that Christ is is given Uh, of himself to deliver us from all that is evil. He's given himself to deliver us from the fallenness of creation. That includes the the worldviews and habits of mankind that do not align with the truth of God's word. And be there no mistake, there is great evil in this world, and it is fully contained in every and all worldviews that fail to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. It is a godlessness in which all of us not only dwelt before our conversion, but we were proud of prior to God's work in our lives. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul identifies our state of being prior to our conversion. He writes this, You were dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were children of wrath 
We were those who were to be the recipients of the wrath of God. We were those who were following all of the ways of Satan as he worked in the world. The lives of all men, women, and children apart from Christ are molded and shaped by this present evil age. Now, of course, there will be different worldviews. Some will be religious. Some will be decidedly anti-religious. Some will be socially liberal. Others will be socially conservative. However, across the board, apart from Jesus Christ, all of the worldviews that exist have arisen out of foundation that is opposed to the one true God. And that is what makes up this present evil age. And undoubtedly, there are some here this morning who are held captive by this present evil age on account of your natural fallen state, a state into which we were all born. You are an enemy of God. You stand outside of the community of his people. And it is a tragedy, but it's not completely hopeless. Notice that Paul doesn't write that we are simply left in this present evil age. No, he says Christ gave himself to deliver us from this present evil age. Friends, do you see that Christ died on Calvary? And because of that, the sin and all of the evil powers that shape your thinking and your life and so many of our neighbors can be crushed to no longer rule over you. For those who come to the end of themselves and repent of their sin and trust fully and completely in Christ as Savior of their soul, the substitute they need to have a right standing before God, we have new, healthy, transforming influences which will change us more and more into the image of Christ, enabling us to live unto Christ in loving, faithful, thankful obedience to him. Friend, if you're walking with Christ, I'm thankful. If you're not walking with Christ, I commend him to you. He's full of grace. He's full of peace. He is full of mercy and is the only one who can deliver you from this present evil age. He's not harsh. He's not overbearing. Martin Luther writes, our sins are so great that the whole world cannot make satisfaction for them. The fact that the price of our ransom was the blood of the Son of God makes it clear that we have no power of our own to defeat them. If Christ gave himself for our sins, then it is clear that he is not a tormentor. He will not cast down the troubled, but will raise up the fallen and bring satisfaction and consolation to the fearful. Will you repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone? That's the question for all apart from Christ. That's the question all of us must answer. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a great God and Savior. We can rejoice in the unified work of each member of the Trinity who has worked from before the foundations of the world to secure our hope and our salvation. Just imagine before the world And all that is in it was created before the galaxies above came into existence. Our God knew you 
and he planned what would come of your life. And if you are in Christ, he had planned that his love and his affection and his saving work would all be applied to you. That should amaze us. That should bring us to worship him all the more. The God that you once rejected as your enemy, you can now walk with as your present and helpful confidant and strength and giver of grace and peace and deliverer of this present evil age and your greatest of friends and your never failing father. Let us give thanks to God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are very thankful that as we come to consider your word this morning that we are reminded of the inseparable work of our Father and of the Son. And surely we understand too the work of the Holy Spirit and that you as our God working as three persons with distinct identities have done all that is necessary to bring us grace and peace to deliver us from this present evil age, to give us hope and assurance that we can walk in faithful obedience to you. I pray, God, that you would help us to embrace the truth of your word, that as we walk through Galatians in the weeks and months ahead, that you will help us to understand the true gospel the relationship of that gospel with our works and your law, that we would reject all that is false and cling only to that which is true and right and biblical. We pray, God, that you would help us in our journey, that we would grow more and more mature in Christ, that we would be all the more conformed into his image, and that through us as your people, as your church, that you would be glorified. And we pray this morning, Lord, for those who have heard from your word and are apart from Christ, that you would bring them to the very end of themselves, that they would be emptied and humbled, and that there would be true repentance and faith and hope and joy and grace and mercy and peace and satisfaction in Christ alone. Father, we pray you would do that for your namesake and for all of us to be able to rejoice together with all the angels in heaven. Would you do that work in our midst? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.